if uh, we could encourage more people to step back and look at the underlying data on this, then I think we could have perhaps a lot more targeted approaches to dealing with this and maybe take some of the sting out of this. Why make this into a geopolitical drama when it isn't? The AIG Global Trade Series 2024 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2024. This is your host, Rem Korteweg from the Klingendal Institute, and today's conversation is about U.S. and European efforts to secure access to strategic minerals. Now, decarbonization, as well as the digital transition, have led to an increased demand for a number of specialty metals. Which metals do I mean? Think of cobalt, rare earths, lithium, gallium, all these exotic names that you read so much about. These metals are in high demand for their chemical properties, which make them crucial to make advanced technologies, both in the civilian and in the military domain. They are considered critical because they are difficult to substitute, they are imported from abroad, and there is a high degree of concentration of their production and processing in a select number of places. And this increases the risk of disruption. An added concern is that this high degree of concentration means that these supplies could be weaponized or become tools of economic coercion if a producing or processing country were to use them as leverage. Now, the United States has identified 50 critical metals. The European Union has identified 34 of them. Attention has now been shifting to the question, if these metals are so essential, and they are strategic, and they are critical, how can the EU and the US secure access to them? Now, in this episode, we're going to explore the steps that the EU and the US have been taking and the impact this has on trade flows and global supply chains and what it means for the future of trade in critical resources. Will it spark a scramble for resources or could it actually lead to new multilateral cooperation? To help make sense of US and European efforts, I'm joined by two brilliant experts that I'm very pleased to introduce to you now. Firstly, from the US, but joining us from Australia is Kathleen Clausen. Kathleen is professor of law at Georgetown Law School, and she was formerly associate general counsel at the office of the US trade representative and covered trade as part of the Biden-Harris transition team. Now, Kathleen, like no other, understands how trade agreements translate into practice, and she's been recently working on critical minerals and their relationship to US trade policy. And from Geneva, but actually joining us today from Abu Dhabi from MC13, is Simon Evenet. Simon is Professor of International Trade and Economic Development at St. Gallen University. And he's the founder of the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. He's also the director of the Swiss Institute for International Economics and Applied Economic Research at the University of St. Gallen. And he is also the author of a recent report which is entitled The Scramble for Critical Raw Materials, Time to Take Stock. Now, a very warm welcome to you both, and thanks for joining me today. Why don't we dive right in? And Simon, let me start with you. How worried should we be about the concentration 
of the production of these critical raw materials in a handful of countries? We should be less worried than we're often told to be. And I think the way to come at this is as follows. We looked with my colleague Johannes Fritz at 17 different critical raw materials lists around the world, from which you can identify about 236 different products. And then once you look at the trade flows in those 236 products, the mental image we've all been got is that all, each of these products is dominated by one or two suppliers. It turns out that of that 236, 38 of them are ones where there are six or fewer big suppliers. And then if you res restrict it down to cases where there's just two or three big suppliers, you get down to seven of these critical raw materials. Now, what do we make of this? I think two things. One is, yes, there is a problem in, in, in the case of certain critical raw materials or critical minerals. And we have to think about how to expand the supply of those minerals and how to build that out over time and doing so in a way that is not environmentally destructive. But we also have to remember that there's a, for a lot of other minerals, there's a lot of secondary suppliers for countries which supply maybe 1% to 5% of the world market, who if they could be encouraged to come forward and supply more, then I think this market could thicken and there would be less potential for disruption. So I think once you uh, look at the underlying data here, you, you begin to see that, yeah, there's a problem, but we can scale the problem. And the goal should be really be to thicken existing markets, not to obsess about the very, very small number of ones where there is a very serious concentration. Thanks for that. And does that mean that this is also, to a large degree, a pricing issue? Simply that if scarcity translates into higher prices, that then these other smaller producers will be able to ramp up production? In many of these raw materials or minerals, the investment horizons are such a firm has to invest upfront a lot of money and then maybe wait many years before the mine comes online. In the case of copper, the IEA reckons it takes 15 years before a copper mine becomes revenue generating. If you want the private sector to make those types of investments, then there has to be quite a lot of policy stability and the prospects of quite serious demand growth. Now, we certainly have the prospects of quite serious demand growth, although there is some uncertainty about just how much there will be. But the area where, and again, this is where it becomes interesting from not just a domestic policy, but a trade policy point of view, is you know, sometimes policy is extremely inconsistent over time. And this is what discourages ramping up of investment. And so there is a, a, a serious supply issue, I would say, a question about how to sustain incentives for supply and capacity expansion rather than a pricing issue. And Kathleen, are major consuming countries or blocks like the US and the EU, are they, are they right to be worried about this and to develop both domestic and trade policy measures in response to the criticality that may not necessarily take place in 50 critical minerals, but as Simon says, maybe in a, in a smaller number. Sure. Well, I think what we've seen or learned, including from the pandemic, is that we can't think about this issue in isolation. And what we're seeing from the EU and the US is an approach that suggests they're not either. 
there are we can easily name, for example, on the on the U.S. side, a dozen U.S. government initiatives that are focused on the supply chain, and minerals are just a piece of that. Right. So, what are some of these initiatives that w- we can today talk about? Uh, the, the two big ones, right? The two that are focused very much on on critical minerals, but but they're part of a tapestry of MOUs and and clubs and partnerships and investment incentives, investment financing, right? some of which is at the country to country level. Some of that is at the directed toward the private sector. And I think what's striking in the U.S. at least is how, just how many agencies have been mobilized to try to address this problem and others that are related to it. I mean, it really is a whole of government initiative, which in a way makes it hard to say this is trade policy at all, right? And I think Simon, what Simon said a moment ago sort of alluded to that. The more divisive question within these governments and between and among them, I think, is just how to do it. So so they think they're, they're right to be thinking about these things. It makes sense to be thinking about these things. These sort of thoughts were put in motion already now for, for several years. It's just trying to figure out how to go about it. As all these agencies are trying to develop policy and try to understand what best to do. Is that the recipe to then create that policy certainty that Simon is referring to that's going to allow this investment horizon to be um, more realistic, to increase global aggregate supply? I think that's part of the hope, but it's not just that. Again, there there are, I think, many intersecting concerns and issues that we can get into in, in greater detail. And I think one thing that is has already become clear is that a global approach, right, just or a uniform approach to these issues is not necessarily the right one, and that we need to adjust and calibrate our responses in different regions. We need to be responsive to the situations on the ground. You, you talk about this issue in particular with folks in Africa, and they say what we need is X, right? And then you talk to folks who are situated elsewhere in, the, in Asia, and they say what we need is, is Y, and, and, and America is the same. And so some of this, all the agencies getting online has then required further disaggregation as well. Right. And so it's actually also a big bureaucratic puzzle, how to Completely. do this in practice. Let's let's try to look at a number of specific policy initiatives that have been taken. I mean, Kathleen, what struck you most about the U.S. response to trying to secure access to critical raw materials? Well, if we focus on the big, the big uh, elephant in the room, as I say, the Inflation Reduction Act, this is the 2022 act, right, that um, now has precipitated a number of different initiatives. There are still uh, regulations that are being put out to understand and interpret and implement the act. But that, I think, is the uh, it has been very much the focal point because its focus is the, the EV market, right, electric vehicle market. And so what is central to that and has been part of the um, debate in the United States is how to elaborate the various commitments that the Congress and, and the Biden administration put into law in the IRA, as we call it, the consumer tax credit in particular, which has individual incentives uh, built in for consumers who are buying EVs that turn on where the pieces of the EV, particularly the battery, came from. And so that's the one, that's the the national policy, so to speak, that most people would think of when they think of what are we doing on critical minerals. We're thinking about EVs, we're thinking about their batteries, and we're thinking about how the IRA um, incentivizes consumers to buy more, more EVs. So 
maybe I'll get into that just in brief. So if you think about sort of four steps here, right, when we're talking about the, the battery of the EV, right, the extraction of the mineral, really where it all, you know, begins, processing, manufacturing of the battery components for which the minerals are, are inputs, and then finally the assembly. Well, so everything about this tax credit has to do just with the battery and those, those inputs to the battery. Under Section 30D uh, of the Act, it lays out a, a clean vehicle tax credit that, that's worth up to $7,500. Uh, won't uh, need to break it down in all of its uh, glory. Uh, but, but one piece of it is that you get half of that credit, um, the $3,750, if a significant percentage of critical minerals like lithium and copper, manganese, right, used in a car's battery were extracted or processed in any country with which the United States has a free trade agreement. Okay, so this was the big, I think, in a way, took many people by surprise that this language was in the act, that, again, limiting that the the critical minerals in the battery would be extracted or processed in a country with which the United States has a free trade agreement, because that's a really small list. <laughs> we, we only have trade agreements with, with free trade agreements with, with 20 countries. So yeah, some foreign companies, some American car companies were eligible for this because they were already doing this work uh, in uh, FTA partner countries, but a lot of them uh, were, were left out. And so that has triggered an entire trade policy conversation around this. That's where a lot of the debate, and I can get into that more if you wish, Rem, sort of has, has um, really begun. Okay. And let's look at it from a European perspective. I mean, Simon, you've looked at critical raw materials policies across the board, but what, what struck you most when looking at sort of Europe's response to this pernickety question? I would say the European response is very comprehensive. They have taken, I think, a quite systematic approach to understanding what critical raw materials they need, how many of them could be recycled, how much can be sourced domestically, what needs to be obtained internationally, and where there is an international dimension, to what extent can they create frameworks of government-to-government agreements? And so, of course, in terms of domestic regulation and legislation, the Critical Raw Materials Act is the key piece of legislation here, setting targets, but not saying exactly how they're going to be attained. And of course, those targets relate to domestic production, not oversourcing from certain locations. So there could easily have been a subsidy and trade policy dimension to them, but that was not articulated. I suspect the commission wanted to downplay the trade side of this in order not to provoke their trading partners, especially in light of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And then the second dimension that the, the EU has is negotiations of a number of agreements with third-party countries, of which the most sophisticated is the EU-Kazakh deal. And we looked into that deal quite carefully, and someone, whoever wrote that actually really knew what they were doing. I actually, I'm convinced that, they, that this, were, this is one of these um, technical agreements where someone actually consulted quite carefully with the private sector, and essentially the deal on the table is you know, Europe brings its capital and its industries, leading firms' expertise for extracting raw materials and minerals to Kazakhstan, and in return, Kazakhstan assure some degree of longer-term contract and supply. And I think that's the basis of the deal, which is evolving, and then it is, uh, and it's emerging over time. There's a lot in that agreement talking about building up capabilities within Kazakhstan and also cooperation between Kazakh institutions and those in Western Europe. So in that sense, I think the commission's approach is comprehensive. This is an area where 
critical raw materials where you need to get a lot of things to fall into place. So there are, there is, you, you do need a coordinating initiative or some something that brings people together. So the commission's work has done that. It contrasts, in my and in my view, a little bit with the U.S. approach, which is at least as far as the U.S.'s bilateral relations with other countries about critical raw materials. That's much more project-driven, it seems to me. Can I pause you there for a second? Because I want to also get Kathleen's view on, you described the Inflation Reduction Act, but there are also these mineral security partnerships that the U.S. is negotiating. Could you give us a, a, a sense of where these bilateral deals are, are, are moving towards? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Simon, you know, you, describing the the EU approach in a way that I think there are more similarities there than, than maybe meets the eye. I mentioned it earlier, uh, Rem, that that there are lots of initiatives. So again, I just want to acknowledge that that there are that what I'll say now is these critical minerals agreements that are are ha- have been and are being negotiated are only part of the the broader um, you know the meetings and and initiatives that the U.S. government. Is engaged in, but these are significant, and they're related to the IRA, as I started to mention a moment ago, because they are the pathway through which our non-FTA partners have tried to get access to those tax credit benefits I just described. So, as I said, the the language of the statute is it's only if the stuff was uh, done in an FTA partner country, and that's too limited for our friends, which include uh, EU, Japan, at uh, the top of that list. But then also some maybe who aren't our our closest friends, but are still important partners, Indonesia, right? Just to name three trading partners that are clearly left out of that language because we don't have FTAs with Japan, the EU, or with uh, Indonesia. So what the response has been was, well, can we now negotiate agreements and call them FTAs in a way that will be satisfactory under the language of the statute so that our manufacturers, processors, and and others in those places will benefit from that same tax credit in the way that our, our other trading partners would. So that precipitated. It was actually sort of in, in reverse from what we normally do, right? The statute led to a negotiating exercise. And I've discussed elsewhere, you know, so there are U.S. legal problems with that, but we're going to put those to one side for, for today because the fact of the matter is they're happening. So Japan negotiated one of these deals. And, and what Simon was saying about the EU-Kazakhstan deal, that's where I said there's actually a lot of similarity between what the U.S.-Japan critical minerals agreement seeks to do with what the EU-Kazakhstan was in, in the sense that they're, they're both both intending to create collaboration when it comes to thinking about critical minerals issues. They both are committing to not putting on restrictions on their on their critical minerals exports and, and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, what are these critical minerals agreements? They're very light touch deals. They're nowhere near an FTA, even though we're calling them that. The U.S. government is calling them that for purposes of, of this Inflation Reduction Act. But they are somewhat more like MOUs where we all say, let's all work together on these critical minerals problems. Right. And and Simon, you were saying you were drawing the comparison between these bilateral deals that the U.S. is negotiating and, and the ones that the EU has. What struck you most in that comparison? So I, I think I, when I look at the U.S. record, I see two types of U.S. deals. So I see deals like the U.S.-Japan one, which are a little bit odd because they're not really major critical raw materials producers. So this is much more collaboration on how we're going to do stuff with other people. And then there's another type of U.S., uh, nascent U.S. initiatives, which are trying to encourage U.S. companies to engage in mineral-rich countries. So later today, there is going to be a briefing on Kazakhstan being offered by 
the U.S. Department of State. And, and this follows a meeting between U.S. officials and five Central Asian nations earlier this month. And these are really about the very practical, project-driven, how-do-we-get-stuff-out-of-the-ground type deals. And so I see two types of things there. Now, let's contrast this to the EU. The EU, I see a lot less project-based work of the similar nature that I've just described. What I do see, though, is with the EU is a variety of framework, government-to-government accords. So some rather on the light side are the ones the EU has in Central America, sorry, Latin America. But the EU-Kazakhstan one, I think, goes so much further than many of the others. And I would actually, and it, and it, it crosses between sort of policy frameworks and gets into, okay, how are we going to get stuff done? And so there, that's where, when I said that the U.S. approach is a lot more, I see it as a lot more project-driven, and I think where the U.S. government is essentially playing the role of broker, bringing together the U.S. private sector and foreign governments, whereas I think the EU approach on Kazakhstan is an example of how the EU has tried to develop a framework government-to-government, which it then hopes others will follow up on. So there's, I, I would say there's a, there is a difference there. And it's quite interesting in the recent statement from the EU and the US saying that they want to align on their approaches on critical raw materials, that you know, Commissioner Sekovic turns around and says, yes, I'd love to do more projects. Let's get one or two more projects done. So that's a clear nod in the direction of the American approach, in my view. But then he falls back and says, but of course, we have to do it within the context of a framework. So you know, commission method doesn't let go too easily. And I think that is where there is a difference. And you know, not surprisingly, our American colleagues want to get stuff done. And our friends at the European Commission like to have a framework for getting stuff done. Kathleen? So great. So I think Simon helpfully brought in more of these other ones. Right? I said there, there are many initiatives. And, and, and the, the MSP, the work that the State Department is doing, is very much of the type that he, he described. I, I, dis, I don't disagree with any of his characterization. I put in that category also IPEF, also the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, in the sense that it is, although it is a, a framework, it's intended to facilitate exactly those types of MSP, the project-specific private investment trade financing arrangements. So yeah, there's a lot of that happening. And that is, as I said, I, I see that as complementary to um, what they're trying to do on the IRA, get everybody in the back door on with getting the tax credit. So yeah, different different pieces of the government working all toward the same. We haven't said anything about the EU-US critical minerals agreement. I was just going to ask, because to what extent are the U.S. and the EU cooperating on this, and to what extent are they working at cross-purposes and kind of scrambling for these volumes in either Kazakhstan or Chile or Indonesia or what have you? Well, lots of possible things one could say about about that, but I I think on the very concrete thing of uh, will the EU-U.S. critical minerals agreement ever materialize? I think hope has largely uh, dropped on that. Um, and and I, a year ago, uh, nine months ago, I really thought they were going to get it done. But uh, for a variety of reasons, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So again, this was simply like the Japan deal, one of these CMAs, these critical minerals agreements that would be called an FTA for the purpose of the IRA. Just how many acronyms can we work into one sentence? But that that was the idea. Now, how, why did it fall apart? And the answer is a several reasons. But one is is the European process took a very long time to to work through all the parts of the of the EU entities. But another was that the U.S. between Congress and the executive 
came to insist upon a, a set of disciplines on labor and environment that um, became a very difficult point of the negotiation. So the broader question you ask, are they working together? Are they working at cross purposes? I'd love to hear Simon's views, but I think the answer is yes and no in, in some respects. But on the very specific issue of this deal, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, which, which raises the question as to what about these European automakers or, or European facilities that wanted to benefit from the tax credit? That is in question. And Simon, your your thoughts on the degree to which there is transatlantic coordination on on critical minerals? There is not much transatlantic coordination. I would say that there has been quite a lot of dialogue, as Kathleen's highlighted, but we would not have had the statements that we had on the 9th of February of this year calling for further need to find common ground if if this were working. And indeed, as Kathleen's highlighted, and I, I by the way, we have this on the European side too, which is it's impossible to do these types of commerce or trade-related initiatives without long-standing or, or, or long-standing objectives being folded into them. And so it's the classic problem of any two big players in any commercial uh, uh, negotiation is that there's just a certain amount of locked-in assumptions and ways of doing things which sometimes are inconsistent with one another, and I think that's what's getting in the way here. Okay, well, let, let's 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 park that for 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 a minute. The degree to which there is transatlantic cooperation and let's assess to what extent these different bilateral initiatives that the US and the EU have been taking or these big sort of subsidy packages that with the tax credits like the IRA, to what extent are they actually changing trade flows? Do we already have a first indication that this is leading to extra supply? Is this leading to new producers coming online? Is there a way to assess to what degree they are already having an impact? I think that's quite hard to do because the challenge here, Rem, is that companies make announcements about investments, sometimes supported with government financing. And those investments play out over many years, especially in the area of critical raw materials. So you know, if we take the case of uh, Japan has actually been financing the expansion of rare earths processing in Australia. These announcements are made and then they will be you know, executed over 5, 10, 15 years. I think what you should take from that is that although action is started to be taken, we will not see profound changes in the supply of these critical raw materials for many years to come. And to go back to the point I made earlier, if there are any sharp policy reversals, perhaps because you have a new U.S. administration or a new European administration or a, a different set of geopolitical circumstances arise, then this can overwhelm the commercial calculus to date. So I think this is an area, and one of the things I took from when Johannes Fritz and I worked in this area, is that we will see incentives to expand production over time being put in place. But this will be a very bumpy process, and there will be shortages, there's going to be price hikes, there's going to be disruption. And I think if we're serious about building longer-term supply, we're going to have to look beyond those short-term disruptions and not let the policy process be hijacked at that time by people who want to shut down trade or anything like this. So that, I think, is going to be a, a challenge, actually sustaining the support for expanding supply rather than just trying to grab whatever supply is available at that point in time. And Kathleen, from a from a from the perspective of say the 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 impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and the tax credits, are we already seeing that some companies are benefiting more than others? Are they anticipating or investing in particular sectors or in particular countries to be able to get access 
to these tax credits? Yeah, so I think remember, you know, I, I I always leave these questions about trade flows to the experts, and Simon is is the one. So I take his point about we we need to wait. I'll just tell you anecdotally, sort of what I hear in in DC and on the road. As you mentioned, I'm in Australia. I think um, one one company said to me that they see the IRA as the biggest mover of policy and changes in corporate activity as compared to all you know other trade policy quote unquote initiatives of late, and so that there actually is movement happening. And of course, we can see that the IRA, you know, is mobilizing billions of dollars, and that is happening, uh, no doubt. But then, at the same time, someone would say, "Well, to do the work, the real work that uh, is intended by some of these initiatives, will take a long time. Not just in the moving corporate supply chains in the way that Simon is measuring and, and noting, but but even if you just say, okay, you know, to get a permit, right? There are a lot of folks who point point out that the permitting process for new mines, for example, takes too long to to make these uh, as useful or valuable." As they as they could be, and then we come to the problem of, of attributing what can we say the IRA cause versus what other initiatives led a company to do one thing or another. But again, that's why I leave these to the experts. Remy, if I can add just one more contextual factor, let's not forget that interest rates are normalizing now as well, and that means that in any commercial project, revenues that you get even five, ten, fifteen years from now will be discounted even more heavily, and so in that sense. If we want to have supply increase, we have to have action more in the short run because revenues 15 years out will be discounted 15, 30% less if interest rates go up 1% or 2% over the longer term. And so I think uh, the efficacy or the impact of the IRA will be contingent on factors which have got nothing to do with, with the actual legislation itself, but important financial uh, and macroeconomic factors like federal fund rates and the weighted average cost of capital company. So what can you do in the short term? Because if I listen to both of you, what you're actually describing is, well, there are a number of these initiatives that are being rolled out. It's a little bit early to already assess to what extent they're already having an impact. It takes anywhere between 10 and 15 years to start producing, uh, setting up a new mine. What do we do in the short term? particularly given the geopolitical concerns surrounding access to critical minerals. I mean, none of, neither of you have mentioned China yet, but China does play a very important role, has a lot of production and processing capacity in these critical minerals. What should policymakers be thinking of in the, in the, in the short to medium term, say the five-year horizon, to try to cushion their economies from any type of disruption, whether simple supply chain disruptions or or the more nefarious geopolitical sort. Okay, maybe I'll go out on a limb here and start with this, which is to say that I think we need to scale the problem, especially the geopolitical risk properly. I was really surprised that when we looked into the data on whether China had in fact cut Japan off from rare earths in the 2010 dispute, that actually when you look into the data, UN trade data, you can't find evidence of this. And so I'm left then to conclude that, yes, weaponization is possible, but it hasn't really been happening. Yeah, And that's why it was important to start with my earlier observation about just how many alternative suppliers are there for all of these different critical raw materials. It may be that there's a small number of them that we should very be very worried about, and let's figure out how to deal with those. But if this problem of you know, shortage of suppliers is actually much smaller than people realize, this takes a lot of the geopolitical sting out of this, or at least the weaponization sting out of this. In terms of other things one can do, well, yes, that we can accelerate where it's possible recycling. And we can also um, have uh, some degree of stockpiling. 
And again, it's interesting that you know, the US government does that in some raw materials, but not in others. And uh, you know, Europe could do a little bit of the same, but of course, this adds in the short run to demand, so that doesn't that will add to pressures there. But I think in, in general, and, and of course, we can always, wherever possible, try and find alternatives to these different their different alternatives. For example, the EU imports lots of boron from Turkey, but boron has lots of different substitutes. We could think more creatively about this. So I think once you unpack this. This mental image that some people have is that there is a small number of countries with a stranglehold over these raw, critical raw materials. That's probably wrong, actually. And, and if we if uh, we could encourage more people to step back and look at the underlying data on this, then I think we could have perhaps a lot more targeted approaches to dealing with this and maybe take some of the sting out of this. I mean, why make this into a geopolitical drama when it isn't? And the G7 has been also having conversations on how to secure access to critical minerals and to discuss at least supplies or the potential of supply disruption and taking measures to ameliorate it. So let me pick up on that because again, I think we, Simon and I are aligned on the, the need for targeted and bespoke solutions. Um, and, and, and to me that can breed innovation in policymaking and, and thinking about what are, what options might be out there. But I, it is probably worth stepping back for a moment and, and asking what problem we are trying to solve, which I, I don't think we really did at the outset of the conversation. We just sort of jumped in. And so I raise that because in these targeted solutions that we are coming up with, I think different actors do have different visions of what the problem is and what the solution should be as a result. So this is a space in which, as others have said before, uh, trade policy um, works best as a spigot, not as a switch, right? And so being able to adjust, respond, I mean, just we, we started this short dialogue here, but, you know, is it, well, if, it, if it's going to take too long and we can't attribute, you know, what, what, what then, well, again, just because it takes a while, doesn't, of course, doesn't mean that it's, it's the wrong approach. We, we can continue to make those adjustments as we go and, and they are, and, and they will continue to do that. And hopefully that will lead to, to positive outcomes among many possible goals that we are working toward. The, the other elephant in the room here is the, the fact that our, our, um, security and sustainability goals are, are in tension with one another. And even within the sustainability space, um, how, you know, climate change is a problem. So we need the EVs, but mining is destructive. So, and the fact that the critical minerals are under the force in the oceans, right? I, I'm not saying anything that, that folks do not realize, but if we think about it from the perspective of policymakers and how difficult it is to make those decisions on those edges because they very much are on the edges. I think all we can ask for is more innovation, more creative thinking, who, what, where this should be done. And the answer is keep it coming. And let us not underestimate that there may be short-term supply shortage problems, but even over a period of five years, one can see dramatic changes. And one of the things we found in the report that we did with Johannes Fritz was just how much non-Chinese rare earth production had scaled up in, since 2015, from 2015 to 2021. The multiples now of more non-Chinese rare earths which are available. Just so your, so your listeners know, this year, uh, well, actually last year, it was expected that 350,000 metric tons of um, rare earths would be produced. And the world has 110 million metric tons of reserves. So we have enough rare earths here for a third of a millennia on current consumption. But really, as a matter of it, once you start thinking in these terms, we are not short of rare earths. We just need to get them out of the ground in a way that doesn't destroy the, the communities where they're located. 
And, and I want to get to that sustainability dimension in a, in a second. What, what struck me looking into rare earths is the importance of the pricing mechanism as, as, as well. And this is to your point about creating policy certainty, because if you go back to what happened in the 2010s, there was this, at least this perception that there was a shortage or that there was the risk of Chinese dominance in the market that then could lead to certain degree of disruption. You see prices spike of a number of rare earths that actually triggers investment. And then the price falls back again, and then the investment dries up and the production also stops. And this is something where I think your point is extremely important, Simon, where policymakers can create the longer-term policy certainty where investments aren't simply driven by short-term price movements in, in these very small-volume markets. Because let's face it, I mean, it's not, it's not big volumes that we're talking about here. And that, that's where a lot of the policy work is, is, is very relevant. The sustainability dimension, and I, Kathleen, I want to bring you in on this because we haven't talked about that yet, but if you look at each and every one of these critical minerals, we think it's part of decarbonization, but it's sometimes it's a very dirty business. So how do we triangulate, on the one hand, our desire to decarbonize, on the other hand, the desire to get access to these technologies and these minerals, and at the same time, not being you know, viewed as somewhat hypocritical by investing or boosting investment in production techniques that are sometimes really environmentally damaging. Yes. Well, if I had the answer to that, Rim, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. No, it, you know, it is, it is such a challenging question, and I, I don't envy those who are in the thick of it trying to, to make these, these policy choices. It, it's not a new problem, of course, right? Especially in solar, we have seen this for a long time, but even before that, and I certainly remember in government when you know solar really was the, the focal point for those sorts of issues, uh, and still solar today, of course, is um, and, and doesn't take uh, one too long to look at what's happening in Xinjiang and to think about the forced labor considerations there, and then now we expand that out to the rest of the world where these mines are operating. So. Yes, I, I think you 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 hit the the nail on the head that this is the a primary challenge. How to do it? You know, the, so the the current approach, at least from the U.S. government side, right, is to ensure that the trading partners with whom we are negotiating these partnerships um, and entering into these deals, you see this particularly in in IPEF, they ensure that there are domestic strong domestic laws that are consistent with international labor law, international environmental law, and that they enforce those. So so that's the the minimum, right? That's the threshold entry level that we can ask is that um, the laws are on the books and that they're effectively enforced. That's our traditional approach in trade agreements. And again, I think it continues to be the primary way that at least the U.S. and and some degree, of course, also the EU and other G7 partners have have approached this. Now, you know, is that enough? Many advocates would say absolutely not. So then what do we do? Well, some conversations now have also circled around private standards that, you know, there are companies that in the in the in the business community, there are responsible mining standards, and we should we should be focused on those. Those are well developed. And in fact, there are many different versions of them. So so for me, it's actually more sort of reconciling across them. And we need, you know, I think consistency for businesses to be able to to embrace them and and work with them fully. So I think again, IPEF is trying to do some of that. I don't see our trade 
agencies in the business of elaborating new standards necessarily, but actually just trying to work with the ones we have, again, for that uh, predictability for businesses, to, for them to be able to actually comply with, with whatever standards um, uh, at least could create, again, a, a floor for the work that they, that they are doing. So that is a short answer to a long question, but it, shortly to say that it, it, you know, it continues to be an issue, but I think we're, we're making some progress on it. Yeah, and, and and Simon, if I can also ask you that same question and use it as a segue to get your thoughts on uh, the role that the WTO might be able to play in in this issue. I mean, you are at MC13 today. To what extent is the sustainability issue a topic that's being debated at MC13? And to what extent are critical minerals issues also something that you think that the WTO could or should play a bigger role in? So at MC13, there's quite a number of people who are talking about the so-called Villars framework, uh, which is an, an attempt to try and elevate the um, contribution that the world trading system can make to sustainable development. And as part of that conversation, critical raw materials are part of it. It's only part of it. Because there's many other things in sustainable development which are, are important as well. Now, as to the specific contribution potentially of trade rules in this area, here in our report, we made the distinction between measures which divert trade and measures which potentially create trade or add to the global supply over the longer term. And the latter, you know, you can imagine policy predictability is one element there. That's where that fits in. In terms of measures that divert trade, then you get into the very sensitive question about whether or not countries should be banning the export of unprocessed upstream ores and the like. And this is an area of, uh, I think, of, of um, concern. Now, you said that you're going to have a subsequent episode on countries which have these raw materials and or minerals, because, of course, those countries see this increasing demand for those. There's a huge potential development opportunity, and they, they're absolutely right to turn around and ask themselves the question, how to make the most of this? And I think this then enables me to tie this question you gave to me to the last one you gave to Kathleen, is that we need to have some type of package or packages put together supported by the right trade rules, but also by regional development banks and bilateral data aid, aid donors, which help or support the development of these upstream and downstream industries in the mineral-rich countries. So that they actually, they, they do see that this is an opportunity for them to be able to increase the living standards and the prospects for their populations as well. So I think there is a Package here, trade will be a part of it, but uh, yeah, at the moment in, in, at MC13, this is perhaps not top of people's lists of things they want to accomplish. But you would have thought, you know, since we're supposed to be launching an investment for development initiative, that this could become part of a second round of that discussion. And of course, there would have to be a discussion about uh, how this links into export restrictions and when they are to be used. And also what uh, type of deal you could put on the table to encourage countries not to use those export restrictions if they knew that they were going to be supported financially through the regional development banks and bilateral assistance. So I suspect there's a conversation which needs to happen there, could happen if we people were being creative, but uh, it's not happening at the moment. Kathleen? Well, just I would just second a bit of what Simon said there in that I, I also see space for, a, um, if not a multilateral, plurilateral approach beyond these bilateral arrangements that we, we've been focused on in this conversation uh, that are, are thriving. 
for me, it would not be the WTO. For me, it would be also, as he said, elsewhere. It would be involving the development banks. We would talk about a multinational funding mechanism for strategic investment, uh, things of that nature. So I think there, there is room there. It's, it just wouldn't look like our traditional trade engagements in Geneva. And it's absolutely, I mean, it's a, it's a massive question. The last bit of evidence I heard about this is that if we want to meet our decarbonization targets in the coming 30 years, we have to mine or extract as many metals as we have over the past 30 generations of humankind. That, Rem, I think is, is an important point we haven't yet made, which is a lot of the discussion in the U.S. is about leaving China. Right? And the purpose of IRA is to get out of China. And, and yet, as you just pointed out, those those sustainability advocates would say, no, <laughs> uh, we need China to keep doing what it's doing. And we need about a you know, bazillion times that much. So uh, so there again, you, I think you, you've captured it well. And that hopefully gives us something to chew on for uh, for some of the other episodes that we're going to be doing this year, where we're also going to look, like you say, Simon, at resource nationalism from the perspective of uh, of these resource producing countries, how they view some of the policy initiatives that are being taken. We've only scratched the surface today, but unfortunately, we have to leave it here. This is all the time that we have today. But I want to thank you very much. Professor Kathleen Clausen and uh, Professor Simon Evenet for talking to me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Again, there's so much more to to explore in this in this fascinating realm of how critical resources, industrial policy, trade policy, sustainability issues, and geopolitics intersect. And uh, we're definitely going to bring you uh, bring you back uh, for further reflections on this. Please check out our other conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series at www.aig.com GTS or get them through your podcast app. The AIG Global Trade Series 2024 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, SEPRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, Elcano Royal Institute. Area, the Economic Research Institute for ASEAN and East Asia. IIEL, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center. ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies. The Jacques Delors Institute. Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group, Inc., or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions or delays in this information or any losses, injuries or damages arising from its use.